Merry Christmas and praise to the Lord for he has come. Here we are, we've waited so long and we're now into the Christmas season, season of, of celebration, of new beginnings. It's an exciting time. Specifically right now, we're in the Christmas octave. But for so many people, Christmas has come and gone. It was a one-day affair. December 25th came, we exchanged gifts, we had some celebrations, some feasts, and for many people, they attended the one out of two or three masses or services that they might go to in a year. And as I I once heard from a priest that I highly admired, they fulfilled that bit of nostalgia by having the celebration of our Lord and feeling like that they've done kind of their, their good for the year. They've had their celebration. But for so many of us, especially from a Roman Catholic liturgical perspective, Christmas is still underway. Now, part of the challenge is that, as with so many things you've heard over the last handful of weeks, it becomes a question of vocabulary. What do we mean by Christmas? Well, in the Roman Catholic faith, it refers to at least three different things. The first is a shorthand reference to the celebration on December 25th, which technically speaking is the Feast of the Nativity of Our Lord. That one, I think, is is pretty uh, well understood, and I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on that, other than uh, recognizing that there's been some controversy over years and years and years as to the specific date that was selected. In particular, a narrative emerged a number of years ago uh, and has has reemerged and, and gotten a little bit more popularity again over the last handful of years that December 25th was really an artifice. It was based on the efforts to co-opt um, celebrations and feasts in Roman pagan times, specifically the victory of the sun. And we can we can actually look back to some definitive data and say that simply wasn't the case for a very simple reason. So looking to as early as 330 AD, we see references to the celebration by early Christians of the Nativity of Our Lord on December 25th. Now, why was it they came up with that date in particular? Well, it's actually because another holiday was already being celebrated on March 25th the Annunciation. And so it only made sense then that the Annunciation being the beginning of Mary's pregnancy, that nine months later would be the Feast of the Nativity. And so it really got built into this broader Christmas season where we ultimately see uh, the celebration and the Feast of the Holy Family. Um, Then we see the celebration of Mary on January 1st, and then um, we go forward to the Feast of the Epiphany uh, on January 6th and ultimately to January 7th to the Feast of the Baptism. So so December 25th really marks the beginning of what was already a preconceived season of events, and it's it's built into this timetable that, that kind of walks back to March 25th. That's That's been a a very long-standing series of dates, as I said, dating back to the 300 ADs at a at the latest. So, what's this this next meaning of Christmas? The octave of Christmas. It's the eight days, hence the word octave. The eight days of celebration, beginning with the Nativity, 
and ultimately concluding with the Feast of the Blessed Virgin Mary on, on uh, January 1st. And that's really a, a, a more or less a week-long celebration. And we'll see actually in the course of the readings this week, it's not been an easy week for me to look at themes because it's a series of feast days for the most part. There's a couple of days in here, the fifth and sixth days of the octave on Thursday and or rather Friday and Saturday um, that, that are more in line with a typical type of church calendar. But the rest of the days of the, the, the week have really been feast days of one form or another. You have the feast day of St. Stephen. Uh, you have the feast day of St. John the Apostle. Um, and then ultimately next Sunday, the, the mass that we're building towards is the feast day of the Holy Family. So the Christmas octave is really, in a lot of ways, it's an ongoing series of feasts and celebrations. All right, then we come to our third definition of Christmas, which is the liturgical season. And as I noted before, the liturgical season begins with the nativity and it concludes, oftentimes people think it concludes with the epiphany. In fact, it, it concludes with the feast uh, and the solemnity of the baptism of our Lord, um, which this year, or this coming year, 2024, uh, is uh, being celebrated on January 7th, Sunday, January 7th. So, so that's what we mean by Christmas in, in just purely technical definitional terms. What does that look like in terms of what we're going to be exploring this week? I'm hoping that people have gotten used to kind of the format over the last four weeks, um, and I really appreciate anyone, I know largely just family and friends that have been listening so far, um, that have been listening over the last handful of weeks and provide me feedback. And it seems like this is actually providing a little bit of a service to people. One person in particular noted to me that when they went to church on the rare occasion that this person goes to church um, on the Feast of the Nativity on December 25th, that um, that it provides some context, that they understood more what was going on in the Mass and what was going on in the homily and were able to reflect and say, oh, I, I, I'm hearing you say that. I know what that means. Um, so thank you for those that have provided me feedback so far. But each of those weeks, I've got to tell you, the themes just jumped out of the book. It, it was the church had done me a great favor as I've tried to work through in my mind what really are we building towards each week. But this week is a little bit different. Like I said, it's a series of feasts and celebrations. For anyone that's been listening so far, you know that any day that we have a, a feast or a solemnity, that it's sort of on an island. It, it, it's it's a celebration, it's an acknowledgement of a specific thing, and it's almost like a departure for a day from kind of the, the rhythm of um, the liturgy over the course of the, of the week. So this idea that you're building up to a specific uh, climactic day isn't quite the same when you've got a feast day. And this week, it's almost all feast days. But as I was as I was chewing on that, I recognized that the feast days themselves are the celebrations and they're reflections of the kinds of, of sentiments 
and, and ideas and examples that we should be following. And so this week, what I'd like to look at a bit is the truth of the celebration. We're given so many gifts, and on each of the days, we're going to hear about the gifts that God has given us. But they aren't without condition. This year, we gave my son a, a, a particularly large gift that he wasn't expecting, and he was thrilled. But my wife actually tied a carrot and a stick to the wrapped package, and he had to pull the carrot and the stick off of the wrapped package and unwrap the, the wrapping paper, and he arrives at another layer of wrapping paper. And there were a whole series, there was a string with a whole series of little tags saying, these are the things we expect of you. If you're going to receive this gift, then you know, you need to know that we expect these things of you. And if you don't fulfill those things, then you're, you're going to lose the gift. And so finally, he has to acknowledge that there are quite literal strings attached and then unwrap the final layer of the wrapping paper, and there's his gift. And I think in a lot of ways, that's a great example for what we see this week in the readings. It's that these wonderful gifts are given to us. The gift of, of insight, the gift of, of eternal life, but they're not without strings. And the strings don't, they don't come up front. You're given the gift. It's yours. But you can lose it. And that's where, in particular, St. Stephen, St. John, really point this week to the potential, potential pitfalls of the early church. Or, of, in, in particular, not so much the early church, but of the Jewish community in that period of time. And we can look back over the millennia since and see those pitfalls rematerializing. I'll, um, I'll spend a little bit more time, as I often do with um, feast days, I'll spend a little bit more time trying to provide a little bit of context for each feast day um, at, at the conclusion of the respective readings. Um, and then I'll provide maybe a, a shorter set of reflections at the end. I'm going to take for granted that everyone has heard the readings and participated in Mass for the Feast of the Nativity, which was on, on Monday, December 25th, of course. And so we'll just start out with Tuesday this week, because that's really where the buildup begins. Tuesday, December 26th, 2023. This is the feast of St. Stephen, the first martyr. A reading from the Acts of the Apostles. Stephen, filled with grace and power, was working great wonders and signs among the people. Certain members of the so-called Synagogue of Freedmen, Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and people from Cilicia and Asia came forward and debated with Stephen, 
but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. When they heard this, they were infuriated, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked up intently to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out in a loud voice, covered their ears, and rushed upon him together. They threw him out of the city and began to stone him. The witnesses laid down their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The word of the Lord. A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus said to the disciples, Beware of men, for they will hand you over to courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will be led before governors and kings for my sake, as a witness before them and the pagans. When they hand you over, do not worry about how you are to speak or what you are to say. You will be given at the moment what you are to say, for it will not be you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will hand over brother to death, and the father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but whoever endures to the end will be saved. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to stop for a moment because I think a little bit of context is due in terms of the Feast of St. Stephen and, and really what was going on here. Um, in this case, um, it's, it's one of those readings I think is severely lacking because the church tries to fit the reading into a bite-sized piece for the Mass. In fact, if we look back to the, the reading from the Acts, the, there was this kind of jump between saying that he was speaking with this great wisdom and then and then the various people that he was speaking to when they heard this they were infuriated well the part they leave out is actually what Stephen Stephen said and this was really uh, remarkable I think a really incredible argument that he laid out first of all who was Saint Stephen Saint Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew what, do, what does that mean he was a Jew who primarily spoke Greek and why was this important? Well, we take for granted that in the early church times and, and in that period of Jewish community, that it was this homogenous community. But we already hear throughout the, the life and death of Jesus that we have all of these divides. We've got the Pharisees. We've got the Sadducees. There's an orthodoxy. There's, there's um, you know, a, a less orthodox community. And what's the biggest dividing line among these? Oftentimes, it's the same that we face today. It's language. And so when we hear about the synagogue of the freedmen, who in other translations is sometimes laid out as the synagogue of the Libertines, the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, the people from Cilicia and Asia, keep in mind that these are all still discussions. These, these are experiences that are being had in Jerusalem. They're people that were uh, Jews that had come from across the Roman Empire 
and had returned to Jerusalem. And in each of the cases, they were coming from places that principally spoke Greek. So whenever you hear the term Hellenistic, think something about Greek culture. So just before this reading, what was happening, the 12 were struggling to fulfill their um, responsibilities to the broader population, in part because of language. And so they named a handful of people, St. Stephen among them, um, to go out and outreach to some of these other communities. In the case of St. Stephen, to really be that one of those outreach points to the Hellenistic community, which include some of those groups that I just mentioned. And specifically, he was supposed to be delivering um, food and and responsible for um, uh, duties at the table or something something to that effect. And what we ultimately see from St. Stephen is when he's out there providing food to the hungry, to the poor in the Hellenistic community, people started challenging him because he was doing so in the name of Jesus Christ. And so as happened oftentimes to Jesus himself and that we see happening to Peter and later on to Paul, um, out comes this big debate. And so I want to I just refer to, to what St. Stephen's argument was that drove people into such a frenzy that ultimately they stoned him, um, you know, making him the first martyr. Basically, he says, all you Jews in Jerusalem are falling victim to the very same sin that so many have over our history. And he points first to the Jews departing Egypt. That So many of them, when Moses came and said, I have... You know, I have this this prophecy. I've been told that I need to lead you out of Egypt to save our people. And others, many people scoffed. And, you know, he delivered any number of signs. And finally, people followed him. Well, then things got a little bit difficult. And they fell back into their old uh, practices. They started uh, worshiping idols. Um, and and it, it then led to really a, an initial punishment there, which, of course, in the book of Exodus is, is very vividly portrayed. And then years later, okay, they've been following the Mosaic Law. They've really established that this is what needs to be happening. Um, but people started in the period of the Judges and Kings, people start to fall away again. And prophets like Samuel come in and say, wait, wait, wait a second. We we really need to be turning our eyes back to the Lord. And the Jewish people, the, you know, the people of Israel ignore that. And now comes the Babylonian exile. And he points to a series of these examples, you know, even referencing um, uh, the building of the temple, a series of these examples where God was very clear in what he expected. And then that was ignored. In this case, he's saying Jesus came, he delivered signs, he told you what you needed to do going forward, and you're choosing once again to ignore the word of God. And and for all intents and purposes, the Hellenistic community, the freedmen, the Cyrenians, so forth, 
didn't have an argument against that because they had been celebrating, they had been, they had been studying, this people of the book had been studying these various failures over millennia and said, we're not going to do that again. And they, they didn't have a great argument. So what do people do when they don't have a great argument? They resorted to emotional out, outcries and, and ad hominems and ultimately to killing St. Stephen. But I, I think that the, the gospel really shines light on what the church wants us to learn from, from the reading around St. Stephen. And that is, though, that it wasn't St. Stephen's um, insight and argumentation in and of itself that led to the outcry that provided such truth, that it was the Holy Spirit working through him. That the quality of the argument wasn't because of, of his own gifts. I'm sure that they were there. But the argument being made is that the Holy Spirit, that the Word of God was, was working its way through St. Stephen, providing him the inspiration. So as Jesus says, you know, he doesn't need to, to work up and think about what those arguments need to be in advance. He needs to have faith that God will provide him with the words that need to be said. Truly a gift to have the insight and the inspiration from the Holy Spirit provided to him, even though the impact of that, the result of that, found its way to his death. Wednesday, December 27th, 2023. The Feast of St. John the Apostle and Evangelist. A reading from the first letter of John. Beloved, what was from the beginning what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we looked upon and touched with our hands, concerns the word of life. For the life was made visible. We have seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was made visible to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim now to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. For our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing this so that our joy may be complete. The Word of the Lord. A reading from the Gospel according to John. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and told them, They have taken the Lord from the tomb, and we do not know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple went out and came to the tomb. They both ran, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and arrived at the tomb first. He bent down and saw the burial cloths there, but did not go in. When Simon Peter arrived after him, he went into the tomb and saw the burial cloths there, and the cloth that had covered his head. Not with the burial cloths, but rolled up in a separate place. Then the other disciple also went in, the one who had arrived at the tomb first, and he saw and believed. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ.
So again, I'll just take one moment to stop um, a lot shorter this time around what we take away from this feast day. And it was the gift of personal experience. So in the case of St. Stephen yesterday, it was the gift of, of articulation and of argumentation, the gift of being able to communicate through effective logic to people that wouldn't listen. Well, in the case of St. John, and specifically in the case of his letters, it's important to know why he wrote them. We, we oftentimes look through the letters from St. Paul, St. Peter, St. John, and we sort of treat them as, as these, um, uh, these pillars of insight, as though they were writing them just because it was this, this, uh, this muse, this inspiration had told them, yeah, you need to go and write this so that people millennia later will understand what, what the faith is really teaching. But that's not the case. Every one of these letters is written in a certain context, um, whether it be within an imprisonment situation, um, reaching out to a specific community, um, as in the case of Thessalonians or Colossians, um, oftentimes at the request of someone from that community, um, so someone like a Timothy, uh, in the case of, of St. Paul. In the case of the letters of St. John, or at least in the case of the first letter, it's really speaking to the first century and second century heresies. And that word heresy has come to mean a lot of things and has its own uh, connotations now. But, but at that time, denotationally, what was the definition of the word heresy? It was actually a reference to specific um, groups and the beliefs of specific groups that were inconsistent with the established teachings of the core church. And over several centuries, there were a series of these her heresies that some of them led to schisms within the church uh, and the breaking away of, of uh, um, other, other groups. Some of them were just snuffed out altogether. Um, you'll hear terms like Gnosticism, um, which was, you know, among this this kind of group of heresies in the early centuries, um, which really said, well, you know, you can kind of rely on your own insight, your own mind, um, so forth. Interestingly, when we see other schisms, other departures, uh, and breakaways from the church centuries later, we we don't really see the use of that term heresy. So it tends to be pretty isolated there. But taking taking my you know, long aside, um, you know, aside. Um, John was trying to basically establish his bona fides, his uh, authority for why people should listen to, to what, what uh, he had to say. And interestingly, in the case of John, he's one of only two of the actual apostles who wrote the respective Gospels. When you look at the, the 12, you don't hear about Mark and Luke. It's because they weren't among the original 12. The presumption is, and theologians have looked at, that Mark and Luke really um, 
speaking to people that were there, and then they were turning around and writing based on what they had heard. In the case of Matthew and John, these were actual apostles who had firsthand experience, and that's John's entire point. In the letter, he speaks to the fact that I was blessed with these experiences to have walked along with our Lord, and I believe it is my responsibility now to share what the firsthand experience was, not you know second and third hand interpretations. He goes on to say, you know, more of that, you know, at, we can point to more of that in the gospel that's given, because they point to the fact that the blessed apostle, which to those that are unaware, anytime you see a reference to the the uh, sorry the apostle that was loved. That's always a reference to St. John the Apostle, the the evangelist. And that he was one of the very select few. There were the women that were at the tomb, Mary Magdalene and so forth. And there was John and Peter, who Mary Magdalene had run and had, had found, and they went running back. John and Peter are the ones who found the tomb empty. And that very last line they found of, of the gospel this week, they find the tomb empty. And at that point, they believed. Jesus was saying to them all along, you're not really going to understand what the implications are until it's time. And they arrived at the tomb, the empty tomb, that had been guarded because the... Uh, Pharisees um, had been concerned, the Sanhedrin had been concerned that if it was believed that Jesus rose, then, you know, this, he would, he would be more powerful as a martyr than he would have been had he just continued with his ministry. And so they made sure to guard the tomb. And even though it was guarded, he's gone. Of course we know. So John has this firsthand experience. In his entire argument, in the reason that we celebrate this feast today, he's given that gift of experience and that firsthand uh, characterization. And in his mind, his responsibility then, the string that's attached, is that he needs to carry that forward to others. And so we have his letters, and, and certainly we have his gospel as well. Thursday, December 28th, 2023. The Feast of the Holy Innocents, the Martyrs. A reading from the first letter of St. John. Beloved, this is the message that we have heard from Jesus Christ and proclaim to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we continue to walk in darkness, we lie and do not act in truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his Son, Jesus, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we are without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we acknowledge our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from every wrongdoing. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My children, I am writing this to you so that you may not commit sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is expiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for those of the whole world. The Word of the Lord. A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew. When the Magi had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. He stayed there until the death of Herod that what the Lord had said through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been deceived by the Magi, he became furious. He ordered the massacre of all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity two years old and under in accordance with the time he had ascertained from the Magi. Then was fulfilled what had been said through Jeremiah the prophet. A voice was heard in Ramah, sobbing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she would not be consoled, since they were no more. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So the third gift, perhaps the greatest of all the gifts we've been given, the expiation of our sins. But as St. John writes, not only for our sins, and keep in mind again the, the context of St. John's letter, this was written to Jews in Jerusalem in response to heresies at the time. So what he's saying is it's not just for our sins. This fairly cloistered group or this local group within Jerusalem and, and the surrounding area in Israel and Judah, but for the sins of those of the whole world. And then we look to the gospel and we hear the, the terrible story of the massacre of the innocents and recognize that even those would be blessed through the sacrifice that Jesus ultimately made. That those who have died in his name would be, would be blessed. And so that's where you see this, this broader feast of both the Holy Innocents and, and then the martyrs, of which there have been so many over the, the millennia. I do want to point out, though, that once again, the strings are attached. And in my mind, the first letter of St. John, in particular, this passage is, is one of my favorites. And I think one of the most poignant, especially when we consider some of the basic theology of the Roman Catholic Church, which is you will not be saved through faith alone. Now, why is that? Well, it's, it's this passage. If we say we have fellowship with him 
While we continue to walk in darkness, we lie and do not act in truth. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. There are so many that have employed his name for the commission of terrible deeds. And I think we can say with confidence that in looking to those situations, they violated the very um, considerations of this passage. That the string attached to the expiation of our sins is that we do his will. We don't just talk about it. We don't just acknowledge it. We certainly don't beat our chests and proclaim to have fellowship with him. It's sort of there's the um, the other chapter, the other passage um, in one of the, the Gospels that basically says, you know, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. If you've received um, praise for doing my good, doing the good of, of the Lord, um, because you are public about it, don't expect to be receiving praise after. And this takes it even a step further in saying, if you claim to be doing good, if you claim to be following the Lord and don't indeed, then, uh, then it's all false. And so when we look to the martyrs, St. Stephen, we talked about earlier this week, um, for instance, he stood up for what he believed in, even to his death. And we can be grateful that for any of those who have died in his name, in doing his deeds, um, that we might find salvation through that, that they may have. It's also one last bit here, of course, uh, an area of you know, controversy relative to um, most Protestantism is the foundation for the sacrament of reconciliation, for the commission of confession. Um, and here very clearly saying, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And it's a recognition that, per the rest of this passage, by confessing our sins, by acknowledging our imperfections and our fallibility, we might find his grace. If indeed we then go forward, swearing as um, a priest commissions us at the conclusion of a good confession to sin no more. Friday, December 29th, 2023, the fifth day in the octave of Christmas. A reading from the first letter of St. John. Beloved, the way we may be sure that we know Jesus is to keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... The love of God is truly perfected in him. This is the way we may know that we are in union with him. Whoever claims to abide in him ought to walk just as he walked. Beloved, I am writing no new commandment to you, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And yet, 
I do write a new commandment to you, which holds true in him and among you. For the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light, yet hates his brother, is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother remains in the light, and there is nothing in him to cause a fall. Whoever hates his brother is in darkness. He walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The Word of the Lord. A reading from the Gospel according to Luke. When the days were completed for their purification according to the law of Moses, the parents of Jesus took him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male that opens the womb shall be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer the sacrifice of a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons in accordance with the dictate and the law of the Lord. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The man was righteous and devout, awaiting the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Christ, seen the Christ of the Lord. He came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform the custom of the law in regard to him, he took him into his arms and blessed God, saying, Lord, now let your servant go in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. My own eyes have seen the salvation which you prepared in the sight of every people, a light to reveal you to the nations and the glory of your people Israel. The child's mother and father were amazed at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be contradicted, and you yourself a sword will pierce, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So gift number three, or four rather, the gift of the light. The gift of the sign showing us where to go. We hear this analogy, this comparison in both the, uh, the letter of St. John as well as in the Gospel of Luke, in the words of Simeon, characterizing Christ as a light to us. Interestingly, there's a, another translation thing here. Depending on which translation you, you look at, when Simeon comments, uh, a light to reveal you to the nations, I've also seen uh, in, other, in other translations that this is a light to reveal you to the Gentiles. So again, distinguishing between his presence to seal the new covenant for the Jewish people and the Israelites, and then the recognition that it goes well beyond that. That from the time that he was, in this case, what, eight days old, um, to... Uh, 
uh, all the way through later readings and letters, uh, especially those of St. Paul, the indication that, that his coming was not just for his immediate community, but for the world as a whole. So he provides us that light, that understanding, that sign of where to go. But what's the string? St. John continues to pile on in, in Friday's reading. That whoever carries hate in their heart, whoever is violating Jesus' intent, not only in his actions, but also in what baggage he carries within him, is effectively a hypocrite. That Jesus is one message, that to walk just as he walked means to carry his word and to carry the word of love. Saturday, December 30th, 2023, the sixth day in the octave of Christmas. A reading from the first letter of St. John. I am writing to you, children, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God remains in you. And you have conquered the evil one. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world sensual lust, enticement for the eyes, and a pretentious life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Yet the world and its enticement are passing away, but whoever does the will of God remains forever. The Word of the Lord. A reading from the Gospel according to Luke. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived seven years with her husband after her marriage, and then as a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day with fasting and prayer. And coming forward at that very time, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were awaiting redemption of Jerusalem. When they had fulfilled all the prescriptions of the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So what of this sixth day in the octave, the fifth day that we're reading here, where were the gifts that were given to us in this one? It's the greatest of all the gifts. It's the gift that the rest of the gifts we've talked about over the course of the last week have paved the way for. On the Feast of St. Stephen, 
we were grateful to have the gift to understand him and to to have the the prudence and the ability to communicate his will the gift of the holy spirit providing us what we need when we need it on the feast of saint john the apostle it was the gift of experience all of those firsthand accountings that we have in our lives that allow us to witness what he's been bringing to us all along. On the feast of the massacre of the innocents and the martyrs, it was the expiation of our sins. It was the ability to, through him, and through our confession of our fallibility to experience him until we washed clean through his blood. Yesterday's gift was light. It was direction. It was an understanding of where to go by living in the way that he would. By experiencing other people and being assigned to other people that he calls us to be. And what do we receive in this final, this final day? If we accept that all of if we accept all of the gifts we've received over the remainder of the week, and by accepting them, also accepting the strings that are attached. We can't hate one another, that we must live a life of love that we have a responsibility to use the gifts to enhance the experiences of others around us, then it takes us to the final one. And that is that overall redemption, that life everlasting. St. John characterizes it well, saying, Yet the world and its enticements are passing away, but whoever does the will of God remains forever. It's that life eternal, that ability in the life hereafter to experience him personally. But those are a lot of strings leading up to that. Anna calls it out in their experience in the temple. This is just after the description of the the experience with Simeon. Simeon says, I waited for him for so long. I can finally come to you because I've experienced him. I have done your will. And I can now come to you, God, being redeemed. And he, he points out, of course, that this is not just a gift for the immediate community, but a gift for the world. And Anna then says it says that she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all those who were awaiting the redemption of Jerusalem. So Merry Christmas to all. We look at a week of gifts in this celebration of the octave. 
and a recognition of the responsibilities we have upon being given those gifts. Just in the ways I described at the beginning of this podcast, that my wife laid very clear strings on the great gift, material gift that we gave our son. So too, all these truly unprecedented and unequalable gifts that God is giving us through Jesus have their strings attached. None of them are on our are asking too much, I believe. They're asking us to live as he would have us live. In the case of my son, we ask him to keep his room clean, take care of his responsibilities, his chores, make sure he keeps his grades up. Things that you would expect of your child. God's done the same. He's laid the strings attached to these wonderful gifts that he's already given us. Recognizing that if if we deny those strings, then we deny the gifts as well. But none of the things he's asked of us in association with these gifts are anything other than what he would expect of his children. Again, Merry Christmas, and look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks be to God. Thank you.